0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So I'm going to ask you guys a question tonight. Does anybody know what the Fabergé egg is? Has anybody ever heard of the Fabergé egg? It was in that James Bond movie. Um, the Fabergé egg, I think, is probably one of the most exquisite objects of art in the world. It was designed by, or it was, it was um, basically Alexander III, the Tsar of Russia, decided to give his wife an Easter egg in 1885 to celebrate their 20th anniversary. And so Carl Fabergé is the master who created these eggs. And so if you look at these Fabergé eggs, they're supposed to be like the definition of exquisiteness and beauty. Um, So I want you to think about places that are wonders of the world because of their um, uniqueness, their exquisiteness. So think about the uh, Sistine Chapel in Rome. Think about all the years it took Michelangelo to complete that masterpiece. Or think about the Parthenon in Greece or the Taj Mahal. Or the pyramids. Anybody been to these places? The pyramids, the Taj Mahal, the Colosseum in Rome, Big Ben in London. I think of vacation. Big Ben, Parliament. Look, boys and girls, Big Ben, Parliament. Chevy Chase keeps going around. Um, Versailles in France. Anybody been to the Statue of Liberty, maybe? The Great Wall of China. Okay, what is the most famous portrait are pieces of art in the world, the most famous, the Mona Lisa. Now, obviously, the Mona Lisa is not for sale. It's in the Louvre behind glass. But if the Mona Lisa were to go on sale, it would probably go for who knows how much. Now, why do I draw your attention to the Faberge egg, to the Mona Lisa, to the Eiffel Tower, to all these different things? All these famous, expensive, and exquisite things would not be there unless there was a master builder or a master architect or a master designer who spent a lot of great time building or creating or designing these things. And so last week, we saw that God created the heavens and the earth. God created man. We talked about last week what it means to be created in the image of God. We talked about why God made a distinction between a biological male and a biological female. And thankfully, we didn't get turned off by YouTube last week because we talked about transgender confusion. Um, And so today, we're going to dive into chapter 2. And so it's very interesting. When you read Genesis 1 and you read Genesis 2, they're almost mere images of one another, but they're told from a different vantage point. Chapter 1 gives us the overall picture of God creating the heavens and the earth Each successive day, chapter 2 focuses specifically on humans being created in the image of God and then God entering into this covenant. So if you've got your Bible, open to Genesis chapter 2. We're finally in Genesis chapter 2. We're just going to read verses 4 through 17 tonight, and that's as far as we're going to go. Everybody there, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. And I'm going to be reading out of the ESV, which, and I'll explain to you why it's important um, in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of that land's good. Bedillium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's as far as we're going to go tonight because there's enough for us to be busy with. Um, So here's the here's the big picture. Here's the overarching theme of this passage of scripture. And I've chosen these words pretty carefully. The sovereign potter established a covenant with his special creation, human beings. We're going to answer these questions as we go through. Why do I use the term sovereign potter? Why do I use the term potter? what actually makes humans a special creation. We talked a lot about that last week. Why is it a covenant relationship? Why does God enter into a covenant with Adam? How does this all play out in Genesis 2? So, we're going to divide up this passage in two sections. So, in verses 4 through 7, we're going to see God creating man with this special act of creation to be a living soul. And then in verses 8 through 17, we're going to see this covenant that God makes with Adam that really helps us understand the rest of the Bible. So let's look at the first issue tonight. Um, The sovereign potter fashions man as his special creation into a living soul. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to in verse 4 is this is what we call a toledote formula. And the reason it's called a toledote formula is because the Greek, I meant the Greek, the Hebrew term, Is the word tolodot. Now, if you've got an NIV or you've got a modern translation, it may not translate it the way the ESV does. The ESV translates it pretty accurately. It says, These are the generations. That's the word tolodot in Hebrew. These are the generations. Now, it makes sense. Maybe your NIV says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Why does it say, These are the generations? Well, as you go through the book of Genesis, there are 10. These are the generation Toledote formulas. And it means to bear children or to bring into existence or to show descendants. So if you go all the way through Genesis, I'll, I'll give them to you. You don't need to write them down. But Genesis 5.1, Genesis 6.9, Genesis 10.1, Genesis 11.27, Genesis 25.12, Genesis 25.19, 36.1, 36.9, and 37.2, these are the ten, and they all start with this Hebrew term, Toledot. These are the generations of. And so this is the way Moses has structured his book, Genesis. It's a literary way of showing that descendants or offspring are very important to the story of creation and to the story of the Bible. The whole book of Genesis is about children. Who's who's begetting who and who's the father of who and and how are you going to have children? How is the family line going to carry on forth? But it's very interesting here. It basically says the heavens and the earth are first. And so you have to ask a question. Well, who are the offspring of the heaven and the earth? This is not some new age thing like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know, we are stardust type thing. But in a way... Who came from the earth? Adam. So, you'll see this Toledot formula show up over and over again in Genesis. But I also want to show you something very, very important. Another insight I want to show you is that the name of God has changed. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. And we said that that word was Elohim, which is the, the general word for God. God Almighty, the Creator God. It's the basic name for God in Hebrew. Hebrew, stresses His power, His majesty. But now notice it says the Lord God. Do you guys see that in verse 5? When the bush... No, I'm sorry, in verse 4. And the day that the Lord God... Now, if you look in your Bible, is is Lord L-O-R-D in all caps? When you see L-O-R-D in all caps in your Bible in the Old Testament, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of Lord, of God. This is the first time the term Yahweh or Lord shows up in the Bible. And this is what God said his name was when, when he met Moses at the burning bush. So when Moses was at the burning bush... Exodus three fourteen 14 through 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now the word Yahweh sounds a lot in the Hebrew like I am. So when God says, I am, it's very similar in the way it's worded to Yahweh. So this is very, very important because the word Yahweh or Lord in all caps stresses God's covenant, personal, intimate relationship with Israel. It's the covenant name. Not just the generic name. God is God, but this is the Lord God. So the Lord God is revealing himself as the sovereign potter. And notice what it says there in verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust. That word formed, this is why I use the word potter. The word formed carries the idea of God being a potter. He's fashioning clay. He's the master potter. He's he's scooping the clay or the earth together to create a living pot, if you will, or a living soul. And it's very interesting. When it says the Lord God formed from the ground, the word ground is Adama. What's the name for man? Adam or Adam. So a lot of times in the Hebrew language you have this play on words. It, It would be like this. God formed... God formed from Adama Adam. We don't get it in our English translations, but God created from the ground man. Man comes from the ground, from the earth. And so other places in the Bible, you see this language of a potter fashioning clay. Um, in Job chapter 10, verses eight and nine, your hands fashioned and made me, And now you've destroyed me altogether. Remember that you've made me like clay, and you'll return me to the dust. Jeremiah 18.6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. This motif of God being the potter, shaping and forming Israel, he shaped and he formed Adam, and God is still shaping and forming us. All throughout the scriptures, God is this master potter. Isaiah 64, uh, is it verse 8? But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We're all the works of your hands. So right from the beginning, as we saw from last week, who's in charge? Who's creating who? Okay, Let's not forget, who's the potter and who's the clay? God's the potter, we're the clay. What do we often want to do, though? We want to reverse the role. I want to be the potter. I want to be in charge. I want to form my own life. I want to call the shots. Have you guys seen, I'm not going to take you back to that movie Ghost where there was the famous, don't go there, but I'm just thinking when some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So when you see a potter's wheel, okay, have you seen the wheel spinning around Okay, and, the, and you shape the clay. What happens if you take your hands off? What happens to the, the clay? It like fly, if it's going real fast, it might fly off and like crash against the wall. Okay, so think about your life. Would you rather have God's hands on you, shaping you, molding you, protecting you, or would you rather have God's hands off and your life go flying off? I'd rather have God's hands there. But oftentimes we don't want God's hands there. We want to be the ones in charge. And when we're in charge, our lives fly off the handle. We're we're, we're no longer in control, and and, um, it's not a good thing. So what does the sovereign potter do to this clay, to this living pot, if you will, that he forms? Well, it's very interesting. Poetically here, God breathes into Adam's nostril and becomes a living creature. Now, think about the imagery there of breathing into his nostrils. There's there's a lot of intimacy in this action. So not only does God scoop Adam out of the dust, but he puts breath in Adam's nostril to show that humans, like we saw last week, stand above all other creations because humans have a living soul. God did not breathe into the animals a living soul. This unique creation between potter and clay, God sovereignly breathes life into Adam. He becomes a living soul. Thus, he can have a personal worship relationship with the living God. So, we were created, two parts to us. I don't like to use the word parts. We are body and soul. Did God just create us with bodies? and without a soul. If that would be the case, we would be like animals. We would be like instinctual beings running around with bodies, but we would have no soul, and it would just be all kind of weird. Were we created as souls without a body? No. We were created body and soul. Now, interestingly, this is a side note. This is not in your notes. It just popped into my head. In ancient Greece, there was this group of false teachers called the Gnostics, And what the Gnostics would say is all matter, all flesh is bad. What really matters is your soul. Like the body is the prison house of the soul. And so this gave them an excuse to do this. This is what they would say. I can go have as much sex as I want with anybody and it doesn't matter. I can go drink as much as I want. I can go do whatever I want to with my body because the body doesn't really matter. My soul's up here in the ether somewhere. And the Bible says, no, you are an embodied soul. Okay? You have a soul and a body. What you do in your body affects your soul and what you do in your soul affects your body. God created us body and soul. And, and think about the resurrection of the dead. When Jesus comes back is our, 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 when a person dies, let's ask the question, when a Christian dies what happens? Their soul goes to heaven. At the resurrection of the dead on the final day when Jesus comes back, what happens? We get a new resurrected body. So do we live in heaven with just souls for eternity or do we live in heaven with a resurrected body? So we will have full body and soul in heaven. That's the way God determined it to be from the very beginning. So God breathed into Adam life. He was a living soul with a human body. That's the, that's the first thing we see, just this intimate act of creation. God is the potter creating Adam. Now, we're going to spend most of our time on the next issue, and that is in verses 8 through 17, God enters into this special covenant with humans. Now, what is this covenant? We'll talk about that in just a moment, but there are four observations from this section, okay? And the first one you may not catch I'm going to have to explain to you based upon the original language and based upon the rest of the Bible what the Garden of Eden is. So the first thing that we want to notice about the Garden of Eden is that it is a prototype for the temple and the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what did you notice? Read read your Bible carefully. Let me just ask you a trivia question. Was Adam created in Eden? No. And you say, well, how do you know that, Pastor Sean? Look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he what? He put the man whom he had formed. So God creates Adam outside of Eden, creates Eden, and then God puts him into Eden. Again, God's the potter determining where Adam is going to live. Now, the word Eden, the Garden of Eden. The word Eden means abundant waters. It means luxurious or lush. And the word garden, very important, the word garden means a fenced-in area, almost like a, a temple. So look at the description of the Garden of Eden. What do you see there? You look at verse 10, there's like a river flowing, there's four rivers, there's gold, there's precious stones, there's all these wonderful things in there. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, lush environment. So let me ask you a question. When God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden, is he withholding anything from Adam? What's he giving him? A luxurious, bountiful, glorious place to live. But it has boundaries, Because the word garden means a fenced-in area with boundaries. And so as you dig deeper into this passage, especially the Garden of Eden, you see it serves as a temple, a fenced-in area where God chooses to dwell with his people. You could say it this way. Before the tabernacle was built by Moses in the wilderness, before Solomon built the temple... The first temple in the Bible was the Garden of Eden that God created and placed Adam in there to live with him in that temple. So what is, what's happening in Eden in this fenced-in area? God dwells with Adam. God walks with him in the cool of the day. Eden is the special place where God chooses to dwell with his people. In the tabernacle and the temple, God chose to dwell with the Israelites through the Shekinah glory and cloud manifesting his presence. Now, what do you see there in the garden? Two trees. Let's talk about the first tree and we'll come back to it. What do you see there at the end of verse 9? The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Now, Where else does the tree of life show up? If you go back to Exodus, when God gives instructions for the tabernacle, and you go to the temple, the tree of life is what we would call the lampstand with the 12 branches, symbolizing light and life to Israel. And then you also have these luxurious stones. So you have the tree of life, you have these four rivers, you see this luxurious gold and onyx stones. Those were what were used in the tabernacle in the temple. It was furnished with gold. The priest wore onyx stones on their clothes. The ephod in which inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So don't think of Eden. Like some people think like it's just another day. Like this is, kind of annoys me, okay. But, so don't do this to me. But if you do, I'll, I'll give you a pass. You go up to somebody and say, how you doing? Oh, just another day in paradise. Have you, I mean... Okay, I know what you mean. Some people think Eden's like this exotic paradise where everything, you, you could do whatever you want. It was a paradise, but it was a paradise specifically designed by God with boundaries, with rules for God to dwell with his people. So it wasn't like anything goes in Eden. It was specifically designed the way God wanted it to be designed. So the question you've got to ask is, okay, if God created this perfect fenced-in environment, this dwelling place, this luxurious place with gold and silver and all, and all these precious stones and, and luxurious, this luxurious place for Adam to live, how's Adam going to live there? How's Adam going to live in the quote-unquote temple that God has created for him to live in fellowship? Does it go well for Adam? We'll get there in a few weeks. You know the answer. It doesn't go well. But that's how God originally created it. So that's the first thing is that the, the Garden of Eden is like a prototype. It's a symbol. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image of God's temple that you see carried all the way into the new heavens and the new earth. Because when you get to the new heavens and the new earth, we'll talk about that in just a moment. A lot of the descriptions that you see in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation chapter 22 are described here. So let me tell you the story of the Bible. Here's the story of the Bible. The Bible goes beginning, middle, beginning. You're like, wait a minute, I thought it goes beginning, middle, end. You read Revelation 22, you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see a lot of similarities. Now, it's not like we go back to Eden. It's greater than Eden because there's a lot of things in Eden that um, we'll talk about in just a moment. So, that's the first thing. Now, the second thing that we see, and you may not like this, but the second thing is we need to understand that we were created to work. Now, Work is not a result of the fall. Hard labor is. Thorns and thistles and having to work the ground, that's a result of the fall. But before Adam and Eve ever sinned, God ordained Adam to work. Look at verse 15. What does verse 15 tell us? The Lord God took the man And put him in the garden to what? To work it and to keep it. He was to work and keep the garden. Now look at those two words. Look at verse 15. What two words do you see there? Work it and keep it. Work it and keep it. Those two words together. Work it and keep it. Now, these two words, work and keep, are only used one other place in the Bible, in the Old Testament. They're used in the book of Numbers to describe how the Levite priests were to work and keep the temple. Remember I just said, the Garden of Eden's like a temple? Okay, Adam is placed in there almost like a priest, like a king, a prophet, if you will, to work and keep God's temple. To work and keep God's garden. So work it and keep it. The only time those other two words show up are right here in, in, in Numbers 3, 7-8. through 8, Talking about the Levite priest and how they're supposed to operate in the tabernacle, in the temple. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the temple. You see the two Hebrew words there, keep it, work it. Adam was to keep and work the garden. The Levite priests were to keep and work the temple. So what's the significance of this? It means we were created to be cultivators to work, to be creative, to see that your work is an act of worship to the living God. Let me ask you this. (laughs) Don't raise your hands, please. How many of you sometimes approach your work as a chore? Oh, this is the worst thing I've got to do. This is a chore. This is a labor. This is terrible. I hate my job. I hate my boss. Well, too bad. You're self-employed. You don't have nothing to say about that. If you hate your your job and hate your boss and you're self-employed, I'm sorry. No, I hate my job. So a lot of times, we can hate our jobs. But if we remember that work came before sin entered the world, if we look at what God created Adam to do, our work is a God-given assignment to glorify Him, not a result of the curse. Now, we'll see when Adam and Eve sin, the ground is cursed. There's thorns, there's thistles, there's all the things that cause hardship when you have to put sweat to your brow and, and, and put forth labor. But Paul addresses this in the New Testament on how we're to work. So you look at Colossians three twenty two through twenty four. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you're serving the Lord Christ. Now, he's talking about slaves and masters, but we can talk about employees and employers. We're supposed to work. Look at that. It says, work hardly is for the Lord and not for men. So, do you see your work? Do you see your job as an assignment God has given you to glorify Him? Not a chore. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have hard times at work. It doesn't mean it's always going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you're going to have to put forth exertion, but it does mean that The way that we go about our jobs, the way that we work, it should be a way to glorify God in our our occupations. So think about that. How can I glorify God in my occupation, in my job? Whatever that is. It could be as a carpenter, as a welder, as a teacher, as a stay-at-home mom, as working on the railroad, as working in an office, a cubicle. However God has called you to make a living, do you do that to His glory Do you work and cultivate and create? Um, Let let me ask you a question because, and maybe some of you that are on that spectrum can maybe answer this. Do you ever really retire, Glenn? Do you ever really (laughs) retire, Doty? Do you ever? I mean, retirement is actually something a modern invention. Like you get to a certain age and you retire. my parent, both my parents are retired, and I think they're busier now than when they worked, because we're created to cultivate. Now, you do something different when you retire. You're not doing, maybe you taught for 30 years, and then you retired, but you're still, there's something in you that still wants to cultivate, wants to create, wants to do, wants to, to be active. And I think if you're not doing that, there's probably something wrong. It doesn't mean that you should not never have times to relax, but I think God created us to cultivate, to work, to use our minds, to use our bodies, to, to, um, to, to, do, to do work. We may not like it, but we have to remember Adam and Eve, were pl- or Adam at this point, Eve's not created, was placed in the garden to work before sin came into the world. All right, now, so that's the, the first thing, was that the Garden of Eden's like a temple... Second thing, God placed him in there to work it and to keep it. But here's the third thing, and this is the interesting thing. What are these two trees? What are these two trees? Look at verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There are two trees in the center of the garden. Tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. So let's begin with the... the the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What exactly is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Now, let me give you some, these are not in your notes, but throughout history, there's been a lot of attempts to try to understand this. Some of these are way off base. Um, Some of them kind of get close to the meaning. Um, Some take it that Adam didn't know good and evil before he ate the tree and it, was only, it wasn't only until he, after he ate it that he understood his disobedience. I don't buy that because God gave him a command not to eat of it, and I think Adam knew right and wrong before he ate of it. So it wasn't like he didn't know right from wrong, and then when he ate of it, oh, I, I know right from wrong now. Um, I think being created in the image of God, Adam understood God's command not to eat of it. He knew right from wrong. He wasn't clueless. Um, some people think that when Adam ate it, it means sexual knowledge. But that doesn't make sense because it assumes that before Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked and felt no shame, and they were married, and they already enjoyed a sexual relationship. So um, there, there's, there's, there's not that. Um, what does it mean? What does it mean? Now this this is, gets a little bit difficult. Because there's not a lot of description. It's just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I believe the tree of knowledge of good and evil means that they would gain wisdom to obey God through his revelation and timetable and not their own. In other words, God set the rules in how they were to obey and love and worship him through his terms. When you think about the word knowledge or wisdom, how does the Bible explain knowledge and wisdom? Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So how does knowledge start? Fearing God. Worshipping God. So, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Adam and Eve were to be obedient to God and to pursue wisdom through obedience to Him and His revelation and word, not through experimentation on their own terms. God was very clear. Let's just just ask the question, if they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what would happen to them? they would surely die. So God was very clear with that. So God gave them a clear command. Okay, so let's think about us today. I said this last week. Did I say this last week in here or was it another group? I'm in so many different groups, I'm trying to remember. Okay, how many commandments did God give when he came down the mountain, with, when Moses came down the mountain? How many? Ten commandments. How many commandments does God give here? One. One commandment. But wrapped up in that one commandment, you could think about the Ten Commandments. Think about this for a moment. What would happen if Adam chopped down the tree of knowledge of good and evil, turned it into a bat, and went and beat Eve? What would he be committing? Beat her to death. Commit murder. What would happen if he bowed down and started worshiping the tree of life? He'd be breaking the first and second command. So the tree is a symbol, a covenant symbol of God's ordained means for them to learn obedience on God's terms. Not for them to experiment, not for them to do what they wanted to do, not to gain knowledge by their own powers, but to fear the Lord and wait for God to reveal things to them. To wait upon the Lord. Okay? Okay? To not live independent of God's word and try to figure things out, but to live dependent on God's word and wait for God to reveal things to them. So let me ask you the question Is God being mean and stingy? Is God withholding stuff from them? What does God say? God's not being stingy, He's not hiding something from Adam. He wants Adam to gain spiritual wisdom, but through worship and obedience and dependence on him, not through his own powers and abilities. Think about what God says to him. Look at the words there. Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. I think some translations say you're free to eat. God's not withholding, like, God's not saying you can't enjoy everything here. I've given you this entire luxurious garden for you to enjoy. And you can eat of any tree in this garden, but there's one tree you can't touch. And if you touch that tree or you eat of that tree, you're going to surely die. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents... The difference between trusting in our own knowledge and understanding instead of trusting in the revealed Word of God. Again, it goes back to Proverbs. What does Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. He is not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't lean on your own understanding wait upon the lord so you've got two trees the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life now the fourth thing i'm going to get to and this may be a new concept for you but this is um a tried and true long time belief about what happens in genesis 2 and the fourth thing we're going to look at tonight is this is called the covenant of works. Okay. There are three covenants in the Bible. We can talk about this at another time. There's the covenant of redemption. This takes place before the world was created. This is where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit entered into a covenant to redeem and elect people. God said, I'm going to choose the people. Jesus said, I'm going to go die for those people. And the Holy Spirit says, at a point in time, I'm going to open those people's hearts and cause them to be born again. It's kind of wrapped up in the doctrine of predestination. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit before time determined to save and send Jesus. There's the covenant of works right here that happens in the garden between God and Adam. And then there's the covenant of grace that we'll look at in a few weeks. The covenant of grace is what happens when Adam breaks the covenant of works. Okay, so let's talk about why this is called a covenant of works. Now, you may say, I don't see the word covenant of works show up in Genesis chapter 2, Pastor. So why are you calling it a covenant of works if the word covenant doesn't show up in there? So let me just ask you a question. Just because a certain word does not show up, does that not mean that the concept isn't there? Sometimes a concept is taught without the word being there. So historically, theologians have called this a covenant of works, and I'll I'll try to explain that why. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant in the Bible is an agreement between two parties. There are commands, there's stipulations, there's blessings, there's cursings. In other words, if one partner in the covenant fails to live up to his end of the agreement, then things go very badly. So what's the covenant structure here? Who are the two parties? God and Adam. Now, let's just back up here. This is a covenant between God and Adam, but in a a sense, it's a covenant between God and the entire human race because Adam is a representative of the entire human race right here. So what God makes a covenant with Adam, it's it's Adam is representing the and we'll talk about this in a few weeks. Adam as the first human, not only sinned personally, but because he represented the entire human race and every single person that's born, what Adam did impacts all of us. He's the federal head of the human race. And so God, the two parties here are God and Adam. Okay, what are the stipulations of the covenant? Very simple. What's the covenant? You may eat of any tree. Look at it right there. It's verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, here's the stipulations, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. What's the penalty if you eat it? And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, you also need to note there that in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man. That's the very first time God makes a command in Scripture. The Lord God commanded the man. This is a command with stipulations that it's very simple. Adam, you can eat of any tree in this garden. And we'll talk about the tree of life in just a moment. Can't eat that tree. But if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So in this covenant, in this agreement, in this, in this arrangement, this covenant of works, Adam serves as the representative for the entire human race. And God enters into a covenant with Adam that, is, that has legally binding conditions. And again, what are the conditions of this covenant? Adam must pass the test of obedience and not eat from the tree of life. Now, this is where there are some inferences that The Bible does not explicitly teach, but we draw from them because of things we see in the rest of the Bible. Okay? So, God gives Adam a test. What's the test? Have you ever had a parent say, don't eat from the cookie jar? What's your first temptation? I've baked you a cake. I've baked you a pie. I've baked you a... I don't know, all these different desserts, but those cookies over there don't touch them. What's the kid going to want to do? He's got all this stuff in front of him. He's going to want to go to the one place where the parent says don't touch. So that's what Adam does. God says there's just one tree. You can't touch it. You can't eat of it. So if he passes the test, he can enjoy eternal life with God in this upright state. If he fails the test, he plunges not only himself, but the entire human race into rebellion and sin against God. Now, death is the penalty for disobedience. Now you may say, now wait a minute, we'll get to this in a few weeks. When Adam eats of the tree, does he immediately die? No. But he does bring physical death into the world and spiritual death. It wasn't automatic, and we'll see how the covenant of grace comes into play in that. Because God could have God struck Adam dead and said, we're done with the whole human race thing here. You disobeyed me. We are done. But as we'll see, God kills an animal and clothes him and promises a redeemer that's going to come and bring grace. So this covenant is conditioned upon Adam's obedience in his works. Okay, He's called to do or not do something. Do, do we see grace anywhere in here? No, it's just it's a command. Don't eat. Now, we need to understand how Adam was created because this is a theological issue that we need to talk about. Adam was created sinless and upright, but he also had the ability to sin. He had the ability to fall and make the choice to disobey. So he wasn't perfectly perfect. Because if he was perfectly perfect, what would he never do? He would never sin. Now, when we get to heaven, will we be perfectly perfect? Yes, because we won't be able to sin in heaven. So we'll be in a greater position than Adam was in the garden when we get to heaven. Not only will we be perfect like Adam was in the garden, but it'll be one step further. We won't ever be able to sin. Adam was perfect, but still had the ability to sin. Now, ask me how all that works. That's above my pay grade. You're going to have to find somebody smarter than me on that. I have no idea. Adam was not created with automatic access to eternal life and communion with God like we will have in heaven. In heaven, I think I just explained this, in heaven... We will not be able to sin or fall. We will be perfect for eternity in in heaven. In the garden, Adam, though sinless, was not able to remain that way, and he fell. So there's another tree in the garden. What's the other tree? Tree of life. That is also a covenant symbol. Now here's where the Bible does not automatically come out and say this, but we can see it throughout the rest of the scriptures. Here's the point of the tree of life. If Adam had obeyed God's command and not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam would have earned for himself and his posterity access to the tree of life and thus eternal life. if he had not eaten. So how do you get that? How, how do we know that the tree of life is a symbol of eternal life? Well, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. What does the book of Revelation say? Jesus tells the churches in Revelation, Revelation 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So what's the benefit of being in heaven? Metaphorically or symbolically or pictorially speaking, the way Revelation talks about it. You will have access to the tree of life. So the tree of life is a symbol of eternal life. And the only way Adam could get that eternal life was by obeying the covenant of works and not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, where does the tree of life show up? I told you it shows up at the end of the Bible. So at the end of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, 1 through 5, when John sees the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, then the angel showed me the river of the waters of life. Now, does this sound like Eden to you? The river of the water of life. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. So, what's in heaven? The tree of life. What was barred from Adam after he ate from the knowledge of the tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He was barred access to the tree of life. So, the inference in the covenant works is this. If Adam had perpetually obeyed and never eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would thus have earned himself the ability to eat from the tree of life and live forever, and all of his posterity would live forever because Adam passed the test. But what happened when Adam sinned? We'll go forward to this real quick. We'll we'll come back to it, but go go to chapter three for a moment. Look at verses twenty two through twenty four. We'll eventually get there. Genesis three twenty two through twenty four. The Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever." Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, and he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away or turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What does it say there? He, he could also take the tree of life and eat and do what? Live forever. So the assumption is if he had eaten from the tree of life, he would live forever. But because he sinned, he's, he's barred access to that. Now, here's the ultimate point of the covenant of works. Adam must obey God's command, and these are three Ps, okay? Perfectly, personally, and perpetually. Here's the question the Bible doesn't answer. Have Have you ever wondered this question? How long between when God gave Adam the command not to eat of it and then he ate of it? Was it a few minutes? (laughs) Well, it was enough time for the serpent to slither in and to to have a conversation with Eve. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know this. Adam had to obey perfectly. He could never fail. And he had to do it personally. He had to be the one to do it. And perpetually, meaning he he had to go the whole way and never do it. did he? Genesis two seventeen. you will surely die. What is, so look at, just look at, look very closely at verse 17. One command, not hard to figure out, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, what? You shall surely die. Is there any wiggle room there? Does he have an escape clause? Is there a reward for partial obedience? Could Adam plead ignorance if he failed? What did God God expect of Adam? I expect you to obey this command with 100% of perfection 100% of the time. And if you eat of it, just this one tree, you're going to die. It's very clear. Now, why do we call it a covenant of works? Well, number 1, it's a covenant of works because there's no grace involved in this. Because there's no sin. When does grace come into the picture? After sin. Adam has not sinned yet, so this is a this is a command that God gives Adam that he has to obey personally as a work to do, to earn something. But why is it called a covenant well, back in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, you've got this one statement. God's speaking of the nation of Israel, but he equates it to Adam. Hosea 6, 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. What does Hosea say Adam did? Israel transgressed the covenant, like who? Like. Adam, and the assumption is Adam transgressed the covenant. Well, what covenant did Adam transgress? The covenant that God made with him to say, if you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. So that's why it's called a covenant of works is because it's a stipulation between God and Adam. It's a covenant relationship where God gives the rules, gives them to Adam, says, Adam, here's what's happened. If you obey this, you'll have access to the tree of life. If you disobey this, you will die. There's no wiggle room. There's no grace. You have to obey this 100% of the time with 100% perfection. Uh, The Westminster Confession puts it this way. It says in chapter 7 on God's covenant, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. Life was promised to Adam if he obeyed. Death was the result if he disobeyed. Blessing, curses, life, death. And Paul talks about this. And we'll keep coming back to how Paul, Paul in Romans chapter 5 comments on what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's that one man? Adam. And what happened? Death spread to all men, not just to Adam, but to all men, because all sinned. Now, we'll talk about that last statement there, because that, that, we'll spend a lot of time on that, because there's a lot of controversy. So because of Adam and his sin, every single one of us is born under the covenant of works. What do I mean by that? From the moment you pop out of your mother's womb and you're old enough to know right from wrong, you and I are hardwired to try to earn acceptance with God through doing something. Whether it's religion, whether it's works, whether it's trying hard, whether it's something, what must I do myself to be right with God? We're hardwired that way. But what has happened? What happened to Adam? Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who was the first one to sin? Adam. And what did he fall short of? The glory of God. Why was he created? He was created to reflect the glory of God. And Paul says this in Romans 5.18. Oh, Adam first fell short of God's glory. He failed to keep the covenant of works and received And he would have received the reward of eternal life. Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam, led to what? Condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, that's Jesus' death, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, The many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So here's what Adam did in the covenant of works. Adam trespassed the covenant of works and brought condemnation to us all. Adam disobeyed the covenant of works and we were all made sinners. So, let me ask you a question. If Adam failed the test, and we are all born in Adam. What's our only solution to get out of this mess? We need a second Adam. We need the greater and truer Adam, Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man. And what did Jesus do? Did Jesus get put to the test? 40 days in the wilderness, he was tested. Did he pass the test? Did Jesus live a perfect life? Think about Jesus for a moment. He lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed. Never had a bad thought. Never cussed at his dad when Joseph said, go take out the trash. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live And he died the death that you and I deserve to die. So when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just restore to us Eden. You know, we talk about paradise lost, paradise gained. He gave us something greater than Eden. He gives us the new heavens and the new earth. It's greater than the new heavens and the new earth are greater than the Garden of Eden because remember, in the Garden of Eden, what was Adam capable of doing? Sinning. In heaven, we won't ever have that experience. We will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Just the way Adam lived in the garden with God, we will live forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This It's described as a temple, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven in Revelation 21 with the Holy Spirit being the temple and us living in, in the temple of heaven with the Holy Spirit living with us. And so the only one that can free us from the covenant of works is Jesus. And we'll talk about So next week, we're kind of done tonight. I got done a little bit early. But next week, we're going to talk about marriage. Marriage is what brings us together. To, don't, come on, Allie, don't laugh. <laughs> That's from a princess bride. We're going to talk about marriage next week um, because God performs the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And then we're going to talk about the fall and all the aspects related to to sin. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, we're going to finish, Next week we'll do the second half of Genesis chapter 2. The following week we'll spend probably two weeks in Genesis chapter 3, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So are there any questions, comments, or snide remarks tonight that you guys have on this passage of Scripture? Things that weren't clear, things that need to be reiterated or rediscussed or recalibrated? Father, thank you for this time tonight that we've gathered, and Lord, I thank you that we can look at this passage in Genesis and see the fact that you created Adam, specially by breathing into his nostrils and making him a living soul, and Lord, we have that special relationship with you as the potter and we're the clay, and we want to live according to your plan and your purpose. Lord, help us to see our work as something that glorifies you, and help us to to do that as unto you. Lord, um, help us to see... What Adam failed to do in the garden and how our only answer is Jesus and what Jesus has done to rescue us. And so, Lord, um, help us to understand this more deeply and to uh, glorify you as we leave this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen.